Hello and welcome to The Planet Today. It is Monday, January 16th, 2023. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy every Friday with bonus interviews on Mondays and a shorter episode on the first Monday of each month. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Samantha Zwicker of Oja Nueva. Before we get into things, here's a quick note from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. on TPT, we are joined by Samantha Zwicker, founder of Oja Nueva, a wildlife rescue and rehabilitation center in Peru that combats wildlife trafficking, rescuing and rewilding key species, and runs a first-of-its-kind ecological research station and education in the Madre de Dios region. Samantha's a PhD candidate who has turned her love of animals into a meaningful career and has spent the past seven years living in the Amazon, where she's rescued hundreds of wild animals and fights to preserve 7,400 plus acres of rainforest. Samantha Zwicker, welcome to the planet today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. That was quite the intro. <laughs> <laughs> that would be, uh, I have to give credit to your team. I kind of just <laughs> copied that in and changed the verbiage oh, a little bit. <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, they'll love it. Well, very happy to have you on today. And uh, first question I wanted to get into is what first got you interested in environmentalism, animals, sustainability, that whole umbrella? Yeah, I think, you know, from a young age, it was always my connection to animals themselves. And I think from a pretty young age, I also connected habitat destruction in some way to to the animals that I cared so much about. Um, Yeah, I remember myself as a kid kind of, you know, forcing my parents little by little into composting and recycling. And my dad was a builder. He was a custom home builder. And, um, you know, from a very young age was, you know, kind of forcing him to plant a tree for everyone that he used to build a house, those types of things. And um, never really kind of knew where it came from, I guess, just, you know, maybe my upbringing living on an island, always being embedded in nature. Um, and then, you know, it kind of turned into more of a you know, maybe I want to be a veterinarian. Maybe I want to go into zoology. I loved Mm -hmm. biology in high school. Um, and in high school, my, um, my grandfather, I mean, he kind of adopted or or rescued two what he called wolves, but they were probably wolf dogs, but either way they were, they were pretty much wolf. And, um, and I had, you know, a few very amazing years of just watching them wander, you know, hundreds of acres. And it was also my first experience in wildlife conflicts um, when one of them was was killed by a local farmer who mistook him as a wild wolf. And um, I think the experience really opened my eyes to some of the issues of, you know, decreasing wildlife habitat, human wildlife conflict, and some of these issues just like in my backyard at home. And from there, it kind of grew. And um, 
throughout high school, college, I did a lot of internships. Um, and then one of the, those internships actually led me to Peru. Wow. Yeah. So first of all, so sorry to hear about the, your, your grandpa's wolf dog, but I feel like this is one of those stories where how could you not start to really care when that's, you know, kind of everything you're surrounded by, it seems is just yeah. leading you towards this path. So yeah, really cool to see how you've taken that initial interest and kind of carved your path. So I guess my next question is, how did you do that? You know, how did you decide this is what you wanted to do as a career? And how did this all lead you to Peru and founding Oa Nueva? Loaded question. But, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, my first visit to Peru, <laughs> my first, my very first time here, I, you know, was exposed to everything from, you know, the environmental destruction um, to, you know, pieces like bits and pieces of the wildlife trafficking that goes on. And I think I decided in my first trip that I wanted to live and work here in some capacity. Mm -hmm. um, and of course that's grown over time. I've been here for over nine years now, um, you know, shortly after kind of living and working here for a little bit more with local communities and agroforestry founded Oja Nueva for that purpose, which was really just aimed at, you know, sustainable community efforts at the time, agroforestry in the form of sustainable cacao, things that I knew nothing about at the time, but I thought would make the biggest difference for this region and for preserving rainforest and wildlife habitat. And it grew into something much bigger um, that, you know, what we have now, which is like you mentioned, the mix between applied conservation, ecological research and rewilding, which, you know, didn't really come into play until several years down the line, just kind of seeing the need for a center that specialized in one carnivores and two, like this end result of getting these animals back into the wild, just based on the sheer numbers, you know, thousands of animals that are seized by the Peruvian government every year. And there's just not any, there's not very many reputable centers for them to go to, especially with that end goal of rewilding. And so it seemed like the path to take and um, a few of our first ever rescues, ocelot rescues is kind of what led me there. Got it. So I definitely want to get more into the research and, and rewilding efforts that we're talking about here. But first thing I want to bring up, I, I think it's really cool how you have so much community involvement that you just mentioned, because I have one friend who founded a nonprofit focused on water rights and water usage in sub-Saharan Africa. And his big takeaway was that there are so many nonprofits that focus on just whatever avenue they're taking, just doing that and then kind of like, wiping their hands clean, being like, yay, we did it and leaving. But he said that community involvement for mm -hmm. him is the main thing that a lot of nonprofits and a lot of companies just leave out, but that's how you get those lasting impacts. So it's really cool to see that community involvement was one of the first things you brought up. Yeah, I think it, I got that sense from my first you know, year, year and a half here was um, that feeling from the community. Obviously at the time I didn't speak as good of Spanish as I do today, so I didn't fully understand it, but. But that was kind of the sense that I got from the community, which was that any nonprofits that had come through, um, most people to do a research project ended up, you know, doing their research and leaving. And most of the time, over 90% of the time, never even sharing the research that they completed. And so that kind of felt like, okay, so there's something that's like first wrong. So when we do a research project, we want to involve people as much as possible. We want to share our results with them, even if it is a project that seems kind of separate, you know, mm -hmm. like wildlife, you know, population level studies, um, sharing that type of research is, is really important for the people who's, you know, this is their backyard. Yeah. And I think that was a huge part of moving forward with these, with these projects with the people. And, you know, very much we, we do try as much as possible to help in local communities in whatever they need and just kind of 
listening to them as what the needs are. Um, I kind of made the mistake in the beginning of, you know, maybe putting what I thought the needs were. And so over time, you kind of learn that you just need to have those conversations to really like hear what people want and need um, before kind of just assuming and, and doing a project that you think is that you think will be um, impactful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, who, who's going to know the backyard better than the people who actually live there? You know, it's their it's their day to day. So really cool to see getting them involved with, with what you're doing or sharing your research with them. Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk, uh, dive into that research a little bit. So what does wildlife research look like for you and your team? And I guess more loaded questions, but the next thing I want to get into is what is one discovery that you guys have made that really stands out to you? Oof, both hard um, <laughs> and yes, loaded. Um, <laughs> so we do a range of studies. I'm actually <laughs> super excited. We have you know, recently taken on, so we've really in the past focused a lot on mammal research, which is great, but obviously we're in one of the most biodiverse places in the world. There's so much more besides mammals and besides some of these more charismatic species like mm -hmm. like felines, um, which is my specialty, but um, but I do care about the rest of it too. Um, so in starting in January, we have more projects getting off the ground in entomology, herpetology, ornithology, which I'm really excited about. We've done projects mostly, like I said, around mammals and some herpetology over the past um, most of our research has been looking at, you know, kind of these, so the wildlife populations in the area, but mostly like how they're being impacted by humans or how they're responding to human activities, which has been absent from a lot of the research around the world outside of protected parks. Um, so we have, you know, lots of research on cats, for example, globally, but a lot of it is coming out of protected areas. Mm -hmm. And as we know, those areas are, are rather small and the areas that connect those parks are, are dwindling in terms of habitat. So it's really important to get research off the ground that focuses on human modified landscapes. And that's what we've tried to focus on is this larger level. What, what are these populations doing in these areas? How are they interacting, but also how are they responding to these different levels of human impact? Um, in our area, that's primarily uh, selective logging and some larger scale logging, uh, mining and um, agriculture and some like urbanization. So um, my particular focus is a little bit more narrow. I do occupancy studies, occupancy modeling, specifically of cats. Um, I look at, you know, density estimates, comparing de densities across this landscape. Um, my favorite kind of study that I've done so far is more looking at the spatial and temporal interactions of the five cat species that we have here. And so how do they coexist? How do they interact? No one really knows these kind of like intricate details. Um, is it time, space, or food that separates them? And so that's always been kind of like the one thing I'm the most interested in as a scientist. Um, but, you know, beyond that, there's this like larger goal of, okay, how are those interactions potentially changing due to humans and what we're doing, even like a lower level um, kind of like disturbance such as our rewilding center. So I like to kind of study those things over time. Um, and then next question, which was um, some of the more exciting discoveries. I would say the most exciting discoveries were ones that we didn't plan for. I guess that's pretty normal. Um, yeah. <laughs> so behavioral things. Um, so yeah, I would say probably recently we've been noticing on camera chats that um, specifically male ocelots actually stick around and help the female raise the young, which is something that's not been described before. And, you know, we thought it was kind of a fluke 
it's happened, you know, twice so far. And then this last time, it was really clear that this male and this female have been having babies over time continuously and raising them together. And then they go off and then they continue to have young together. And this male supports and brings food back. And I just thought it was like the most incredible thing to kind of capture those things on camera. Um, and we've gotten that type of behavioral data before. Um, another interesting one would be for short-eared dogs, super elusive, understudied dog that we have here in the lower Amazon. And they um, do a similar thing where the male and female work together to um, take care of the young for a really long time, at least over a year, which is super incredible. And we've been able to document the types of food that they bring back anything from like fruits to toads and, you know, small mammals. So that's been super interesting as well. That's so cool too. And I know you had mentioned how it's an unexpected thing that your team discovered, but it's gotta be so cool to be looking for something or even just looking through the camera reels and all of a sudden you find out this thing that no one was really looking for. Exactly. Yeah. I think, you know, it wasn't in the plan. Like we have these grids set up either for, you know, meso predators like margays, or we have them set up for big cats and either way, that's a totally different grid size and all these things. But then you pick up the cameras and there's always like something super special um, that you just weren't expecting. And it leads to, you know, potentially new studies and wanting to go in this direction and, and answer this question, um, which is really exciting because we get to share that with, with um, like visitors. We get a lot of students here. Um, we get volunteers who come down to do an independent research project, ones that we're able to kind of almost provide like a grant for to kind of pursue these side projects here and there. So it's, it's super exciting to be able to explore those types of studies and, and, you know, things that haven't been discovered before. That's so cool. Um, yeah. When we were talking earlier about human impact, the thing that always jumps out to me, and this is a picture that I saw probably five years ago, but it was a, a subway in Chicago that a coyote had just wandered onto. And sometimes when we think of human impact on, on wildlife, we think of those big events that, you know, will go viral on the internet or something, but in reality, there's a human impact on wildlife every single day in ways that are both seen and unseen to the average person. So to be able to kind of quantify that and present that as data that's really, really important, not just for conservationists, but for the local community, that's really great that your team is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's been probably one of the most exciting things that have come out. Sometimes when you go to process all of your data, um, the analysis portion doesn't always turn out as expected. And so some of them have come out looking, you know, what we predicted kind of hypothesized. And that's always really exciting to see. Got it. So another thing that your team does that we mentioned was rewilding efforts. And I saw on your website that those rewilding efforts focus on rescuing, rehabilitation, and reintroduction of keystone species in the Peruvian Amazon. So can you expand on that a little bit for the listeners? Yeah, definitely. Um, so starting in 2020 is when we, we really developed our rewilding center and specialized more in carnivores. It was kind of like the biggest need for the country of Peru. And um, that entails so many things, but it really since then has grown from working with the local wildlife department, which is for Madre de Dios as a region, really big region, if I'm honest. Um, there's only four people who work in the department, um, oh, wow. but they have, you know, been, of course, bringing us animals for, for years now. And it started as, you know, a small effort, something that we had been doing more as like a temporary custody kind of permitting for these animals to get them back in the wild and then, you know, grew into what we are now. And um, I don't think any of us really predicted either what that would, you know, <laughs> what that would mean. Um, 
we have been working now at the national level, I would say for about a year and a half. So we work with um, the national certificate, which is like the wildlife department of Peru federally, and then the different um, departments across Peru, essentially when people seize or rescue or just come across wild animals, especially, especially cats, um, but other things like coatis, kinkajous, um, we kind of take in anything that is young enough to be rewilded um, and sometimes other cases, um, but we get calls and we have kind of also bec become an entity that facilitates the movement of these animals so that they can reach a destination of some kind a lot faster than they did in the past. One of the issues across the country before was that when animals are seized and there's not a place for them to go or that coordination is kind of lacking, there's very little resources and personnel in those positions is that these animals kind of sit in a, almost like a storage facility for a very long period of time. And a lot of them end up getting um, euthanized or they you know die in that in that situation and so one of the things that we've been able to do is help facilitate where these animals go if it's you know a really old female jaguar that's been in the zoo for 13 years we can facilitate for her to go to a really good sanctuary and if it's an animal that we can take on um, that has you know a future potentially being wild again then then we do and so that kind of you know comes in many forms we have some weeks where we receive six animals and we have weeks where we receive one but um you know right now we have over 50 animals in our care oh, wow. we have you know i think 16 of them are our wild cats um and it's just you know we're able to kind of have more of a like feel the pulse i guess on wildlife trade and trafficking and how in some ways it has increased since since covid and we've been seeing an increase over the years um so as that kind of grows and develops, I think we do too. And, and what we kind of focus on and, and specialize in and help others in just, um, yeah, trying to make the biggest difference possible. Got it. That is so, that, that's got to feel so impactful on, I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes with any sort of conservation based science, it's tough to feel the impact on a day to day because a lot of it is data analysis, writing reports, publishing those results. And not until the end of all of that, do you say, oh, I just had months to years of hard work that went into this. And, and you don't always get to, to really feel the, the immediate impact. With something like this, it's probably gotta be so cool to have all of these animals in your care and to rewild them. Yeah, it's definitely one of the most fulfilling, you know, feelings is at the very end of that process. Um, and also like when, when the rescue happens, I would say as well, mm -hmm. like um, we always, you know, it's, it's a, it's a good day when we're able to facilitate a rescue, especially from somewhere like 2000 miles away and go through, you know, days, sometimes weeks of getting the animal here and, and that that goes well, that that works. Um, I think the rescue is, is huge in that, in that aspect of, you know, feeling fulfilled. Um, yeah. And then of course the rehabilitation process can be years. It's, you know, sometimes we receive baby animals, maybe they're a month old like a month old ocelot or margay and um, we have them here in rehabilitation until they're about a year and a half sometimes two years old so it's a really long process mm -hmm. um so it's kind of it's a long journey to get to that end that end goal sometimes but very very fulfilling um, i would say that you know we as we kind of grow and kind of see some of these issues more firsthand and we like i said have more of contact with the different departments and are seeing firsthand some more of these operations that are um, facilitating animals being taken from the wild. We've been 
more inclined to switch our focus and, and potentially start to address some of those root causes of why are so many animals being taken from the wild and, and what contributes to that and what can we do, but also what can we educate other people to do, which I hope grows and becomes a bigger part of our work. Absolutely. So the, the other thing that we had touched on earlier was deforestation and how that's another big part of what your team does. So I'm sure this is something that you all see firsthand living in the Amazon. Um, so what role do you and Oja Nueva play in protecting the rainforest? Yeah, I mean, protecting rainforest here is is a huge responsibility. We have um, the way that the that land acquisition and land protection works is very different than other, other areas of the world. And so, you know, kind of just like buying rainforest isn't really a solution. You really have to have the methodology and the presence to be able to protect that land, um, especially in like this huge unprotected area that is um, so far from society. <laughs> we are, you know, about 12 hours by boat from the closest city of Puerto Maldonado. And being that far means that we don't have the type of um, government and police support and all of that, that that comes with being closer to, an, to a city like that. So, um, you know, we have to be very vigilant about our lands, um, you know, kind of land invasion and resource extraction is a huge issue. Um, in the very beginning, I think it was, you know, a little bit harder. We had a smaller team and, you know, you would hear chainsaws sometimes from all different directions and you'd have to try to find what was happening. And, and now it's, it's definitely gotten a little bit easier. And back to the original point of, you know, working with communities, I think that plays a huge part of it. Um, you know, having good relationships, I would say, with, you know, people and having that mutual respect is huge in terms of protecting land because a lot of times, um, I mean, it might not be those people individually or, you know, from like the local communities, but it would be people who pass through there, people that they might know. And when you have that level of mutual respect, people that understand why you're here, why you rescue all of these crazy looking animals and why you're trying to put them back in the forest. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. When you have that, it makes, it makes the job a lot easier for sure. Got it. That's, that's so awesome. And I'm curious, something that I don't know if this is the right question to ask necessarily, but I know with Colombia announcing that they were going to make a really hard push to protect 10% of the Amazon. And with Brazil's recent election, having Lula come back into power and saying that protecting the Amazon from deforestation is going to be a major, major push. Is that something that people in Peru are feeling as well? Or is it kind of segmented across the different countries? I would say, yes, the majority of Peru would feel that way. Obviously, especially right now, we're, you know, in a huge transition here. And so it's a, it's a kind of like tumultuous time. Um, we've, you know, I would, I say we, I'm just having <laughs> been here experiencing it. Um, there's been quite a bit of a turnover of, of, I'm sure, you know, in terms of presidents and stuff, there's mm -hmm. a lot going on in this very moment. Um, but I would say that the general consensus is that, you know, protecting forests, um, protecting natural resources is a huge goal. And a lot of that stems from ecotourism and what ecotourism brings and can bring to especially these kind of remote um, departments like Mar de Dios, like the city of Puerto Maldonado, what that can do for people. Um, and so I think that, you know, really focusing on, you know, the recreational ecotourism side has been huge in terms of conservation in Peru. And I really hope that, you know, things become more stable and that can grow. Yeah, it's so interesting how something that can bring in so much good to the local economy with ecotourism, but also is just so important globally. And, you know, in this case, we're talking about the Amazon, but rainforests in general, 
are, are so good about sequestering carbon, which is frankly one of the greatest challenges of our time right now. So to have a large, a large segment of South America with multiple different countries involved protecting this one giant forest definitely can't be easy. And it's great to see that there are a lot of leaders and people stepping up and saying, no, we all need to contribute to this. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it, you know, again, kind of goes back to also empowering the communities that are mm -hmm. trying to do that very thing. And um, the entities on a small scale, you know, grassroots level nonprofits who are trying to do that. And um, there are quite a few, there's many that can be supported across the Amazon. And I think people are, are kind of, you know, noticing that. So let's, let's hope there's, there's hope for the future. That's for sure. Awesome. So last question and hopefully this is something that over the last 20 something minutes, our listeners want to do. What is something that the people listening to this podcast right now can do to support or to get involved with Oha Nueva? Oh, great question. I mean, one of the best ways for people to support from abroad is of course to donate for, um, you know, a small nonprofit we run on donations. Um, we also do accept visitors, not to our rewilding center. Our, our rewilding center is very hands-off in terms of people, um, but we have a research center, super beautiful, was just constructed this year. Um, we'd love to teach. Uh, we accept a lot of high school students, college students here. Um, a huge way to support is also to visit us. Um, and then I would say on kind of a grander scale that, um, you know, like we talked about earlier, this self-education awareness, spreading that to your family, your friends is huge in impacting the rainforest. It seems very far away, but there are, you know, decisions, choices that everyone can make from afar that do make a difference for, for our rainforest and for, I guess, the future of our world. So yeah, yeah many, many things people can do, but if you tell them to check out our website, we've got lots of information on there and then other ways to support us. Awesome. And we will link your website in the show notes that way. If anybody wants to swipe up and go check that out, it's right at your fingertips. Amazing. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. I had a ton of fun talking to you and, and I'm really excited for the listeners to hear this and hopefully learn as much as I did today. Amazing. Yeah, me too. I can't wait to hear it. Absolutely. So before we let you go, we end every interview with three fun rapid fire questions. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Don't worry. They're fun. They're fun. Number one, what is your favorite animal? Um, Tyra. Very cool. Margay. So many things, but that's hard. Cool. <laughs> Number two, what is something you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Oh, um, we run fully on solar here at Oja Nueva. So that's the main way that we remain super sustainable. That is awesome. All right. And number three, what is one environmental topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Responsible ecotourism abroad, especially in the rainforest. What you should and should not do. Sounds good. Awesome. Thank you again so much. This is great. And aside from your website, is there any way that people can keep up with Oja Nueva? Any social medias you want us to tag in this? Uh, we are very active on Instagram. We're not super active on, on the rest of them, but if they check out just at Oja Nueva, then they're going to see lots of cool footage of our rescue animals and our research. Awesome. All right. If you're listening now, go follow Oja Nueva. We'll also link that in the show notes. So you have no excuse not to. Amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that will do it for today's episode. Thanks again to Samantha for her time today. Make sure to hit the link in your show notes to learn more about Oja Nueva. 
Nick and I will be back on Friday for some quick hits to get you into your weekend. But until then, make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT. For the Planet Today, I'm Matt Norton. See you on Friday. Thank you.